I cannot stress again how important it is for you to know that Sally's agenda is not manipulative, uh, nor is it driven by any political agenda. Sally's agenda, if she has one, is to say, here's my story. Would you mind listening to me? And I'm open to any question. That's a pretty non-threatening, Jesus-like approach, if you ask me. And if you don't want to have Sally, read her book. Uh, I want to thank Leonard Allen and Leafwood Press for taking a risk in naming a book called Loves God Likes Girls. Yep. Uh, this book is $12. It's in the back, uh, right back it's here. Uh, you even have an iPad. You can scan credit cards. You don't even have to have uh, cash. Not that anybody except Dave Ramsey carries cash. But anyway, um, $12. I'll even make you a deal. If you don't have $12, literally, I will buy this book for you. Uh, this book sits on my coffee table in my office. It creates all kinds of interesting conversation. Because <laughs> they do a double take, sometimes a triple take on the title. Tell me more about this. And I get to share with them about my friend Sally. I told my wife, oh, about six or eight months ago, and I'm almost embarrassed to admit this. I said, Sally and I are like brother and sister now, and the oddest thing happened. For the last several months, I forgot that Sally was gay. <laughs> I, it doesn't even cross my mind. And, and there are so many questions on these index cards that we need to get to, but one of those questions is, uh, you know, kind of, how, how do you talk about this? Sally, what do we call you? Um, Sally. And those are fair questions. But trust me, I don't introduce Sally as, hi, this is my gay friend Sally. She runs Centerpiece. But rather, this is my friend Sally, and her dad's name is Dan, and she has a brand new dog named Rudy. And my children call her Miss Sally. She comes to my children's performances at school and she encourages my boys she loves my wife she's even going to get together with my wife and they're going to make carrot cake together sometime that's right. soon that's right she but, will but this can't happen apart from the table that's right can it that's right uh what reflections thoughts do you have as a lead leading into this next discussion I'm just going to let you take it away with one commercial announcement for those of you who might be new, and that is if you haven't picked up a whole handful of these green cards advertising our E3 conference October 4th through the 7th in Dallas at the Highland Oaks Church, please take a handful of those. That second suitcase of brochures was really heavy, so let's get rid of that stuff back there. Last summer... I sent my middle school son uh, to a devotional at somebody's house. He was told to bring his swimming suit and that they would be having a Bible study with the interns and then swim party afterwards. And I walked into the house and the two interns and our youth minister, youth pastor, whatever you call the crazy guy that loves middle school and high school students at your church, he was sitting around with middle school students looking at the clobber texts on homosexuality. You don't know what the clobber texts are. These are, uh, I think, somehow unhelpful classifications of specific Bible passages that are fairly derogatory and condemning uh, about the uh, homosexual community uh, in the story of Scripture. I'm not saying they don't have a place. I'm not trying to downgrade them. 
but in this lingo, they're called the clobber text. And I thought, that, that's quite interesting that we have a middle school devo in the middle of the summer that was characterized as a swim party, and they're going to talk about the clobber texts. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, as a dad, it really bothered me. Like, you know, some communication would have been helpful. Send out an email. Let us know what you're talking about. But here's what I wished I would have thought first. How wonderful it is that our children can have dialogue about something that adults are so uncomfortable having dialogue about. How wonderful it is to have a youth minister who, who loves all students so much that, he, that he's willing to have a conversation about particular texts that I'm not even sure I would talk about in adult Bible class quite yet. Because dialogue matters so much. I, I want to point us to uh, Acts chapter 15, and I want to try to make a comparison, not so much about what we read in the Bible, but rather how we read our Bibles. Because I'm convinced uh, through my uh, graduate work and through just conversations as a as a preacher and a youth minister that probably 90% of my conversations have to do with how to read the Bible rather than what is in the Bible. Because it's really hard to have a conversation with someone who, who considers this a very simple blueprint for living in 2018 because it wasn't written in 2018. Uh, Google the word hermeneutic sometime. Google the word exegesis sometime. I mean, it's really difficult to treat every single passage of Scripture equally. So I, I don't really want to deal with every passage of Scripture, but I want to point to a place where there was pretty open division between how they ought to feel about a particular group of people. The earliest church, the Spirit-filled people of God, were trying to wrestle with how to accept or welcome these Gentile people who were exhibiting behaviors that were absolutely disgusting to those who had walked with God for a really, really long time. So some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. By, by the way, I would point you to Richard Hayes' book, uh, Discerning God's Will Together. Uh, no, that's, um, um, yeah, that's Ruth Haley Barton. Uh, Richard Hayes' book on this is, help me somebody, um, The Moral Vision of the New Testament. Yes, I'm thinking of Luke Timothy Johnson's book. I'm sorry. Scripture and Discernment. Thank you, Doug Peters, theological scholar in the room. Yeah. Uh, these are people who have done extensive work with Acts 15. I just want to point out something really simple. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Here's why I say this is really simple. They had dissension, so what did they do? They talked about it. I'm not trying to be patronizing. All I'm pointing out is that in Acts 15, there was a really hard conversation and they didn't send a letter they didn't even send a spokesperson they said you know we ought to get together and talk about this 
So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of all the Gentiles. And this brought great joy to all the brothers. But when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, I want to pretend for a second that this wasn't just completely pejorative or mean-spirited, that they had a legitimate concern, a theological preference. Look, these people have got to be circumcised. They're not following the same law that we are. So the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said, simple observation. Debate doesn't always have to be negative, does it? What if instead the spirit of this text is, there had been much storytelling among them, so Peter stood up and said to them, You see, I think we have to tell stories before we make doctrinal statements. I I think it's important that we listen to someone and say, what is this like for you? Before we ever say, we ought to get together and do this. I was talking to a preacher buddy of mine, and they did a, uh, a celebration of Martin Luther King Jr. at their church. Their church, by the way, a predominantly... Caucasian church and so they put a committee together and he he admitted that it wasn't even his idea but the bright idea that somebody had is what if we asked all the African Americans in our church what it would be like to honor Martin Luther King Jr. how would that look and he said the most amazing thing happened everybody showed up and celebrated this particular event because somebody cared enough to ask what this was like for them. And and to me, testimony and storytelling is woven all throughout Acts 15. And, And my question is, does storytelling and testimony, could it have the same weight as correct interpretation? Or could one inform the other? Because really the story of Acts is a continuation of the story of what, friends? Luke. This is the second half of the story of Jesus. And Jesus gave the church a particular mission to embody. And what if the earliest church, the earliest spirit-filled disciples didn't have it all figured out, but rather they had the courage to step into mission. And as they stepped into mission, the mission therefore determined the steps that they were supposed to take. So the mission of God preceded a conversation about who gets to be a member of God. And it was worth the risk to, in fact, step into the water, the water being mission, Because as you step into mission, you learn what it's like to be the people of God. So I want to show you a clip of um, a really smart person. I love leading with that. His name is Dr. Joel Green. Uh, He's at Fuller Theological Seminary. Uh, And he makes a, a really fascinating point. It's about two and a half minutes. And I want you to watch this and ask yourself, 
if this could be the way we enter this conversation. Sally? I think sometimes churches think or we think that if I can just get things right, then I can get engaged in mission. Or if I can get my life together, if the church can get its life together, then we can get involved in these larger things. And whatever else the book of Acts teaches, I think, it's that the church will never get itself right if it's not engaged in mission, because there's no way to be right except to be missional church. It's not like we have to get everything right. We have to know exactly what God wants uh, before we take some steps. Because part of discernment is taking steps. And maybe we only know one step to take or two, but we take steps. And it's in the context of stepping, as it were, that we, we see that we've made the wrong step or that there are other steps to take. I think about Acts chapter 16. Paul and his entourage, they want to go here, but the Holy Spirit says no. And so they try to go here, and the Spirit of Jesus says no. And then Paul has the Macedonian call. He wasn't, you know, sitting around saying, okay, I'll wait here until God tells me something. He's actually engaged in mission and trusting, that's a key issue there, isn't it? Trusting that God will direct him, in, even as he moves. In the book of Acts, I think there are basically three ways in which discernment or, or openness to what God is doing show up. One of them, of course, is prayer. It's in prayer that people uh, discern and align themselves with what God is up to. But interestingly, it's also in Acts that people discern what God is doing by engaging with people outside of themselves. They learn something about what God is doing by engaging in mission, which helps them read the Bible differently, which would be the third thing. So those three things, prayer, engagement with others, and scripture, they sort of go hand in hand, and they help the church discern where it is that God is going and how they might align themselves with what God is up to. the last time that someone brought this particular issue about the LGBTQ community and your elders first response was we don't really know but we need to pull away and pray because if I read the story of the earliest church correctly prayer was not just something they did before they had announcements prayer was not something they did before they passed the bread or the cup Prayer was what shook the very doorposts of the places where they worshiped. Prayer is what empowered mission. So if we're going to be churches on mission, I really like what Joel Green says. Let's take steps. Taking steps is much different than finding solutions, right? And you take steps through prayer you take steps through conversation and you take steps through story. And trust me, I know how awkward this conversation is. I know how painful this conversation is. 
And I believe that the church really does want to step forward. I, I call this the gospel move. There's got to be gospel moves that we can make with anyone who thinks differently than we do. There's got to be gospel steps we can take with somebody when we are in conversation with one another. And even though we may walk away agreeing to disagree, at the very least, we still love each other. And for me, that's why I think this conversation is so critical. I really like what Anne Lamott says. Anne Lamott says this, If you have created God in your own image, then God will turn out to hate the same people you do. Which leads me to the following question. Is God like Jesus or is Jesus like your God? Let me say that again. Is God like Jesus or is Jesus like your God? Because how you answer that question changes how you respond to this conversation. Because if you are convinced that who Jesus is is fully God, then you've got some work to do on how you think about God. Which is so puzzling to me about what, what we do with John chapter 8 because this is the primary argument, and I, I'm just going to try to be real and transparent, that that's given to me in how to treat the gay community. Pat, it says very clearly in John chapter 8, Jesus told the woman to go and sin no more. Why can't we do that with the gay community? Even Jesus said, go and sin no more. Well, you're right, but that was not Jesus' starting place. The starting place for Jesus was trying not to condemn this woman. You see, I think those of us in the church, we want to open with go and sin no more, then we won't condemn you. Rather than Jesus saying, you know what, I'm not going to throw a rock at you, and neither are all these really super spiritual people. So, so doesn't relationship precede any other step forward? So is there a way to think about this conversation where we can move towards belonging before we get to belief? Is there a way to welcome and embrace to use some of Miroslav Volf's language, is, is there a way to embrace rather than exclude? Can we make that our first step in the conversation where prayer and mission and embrace precede anything else? Yeah, I... I I was thinking as you were talking uh, that it goes even much deeper than having a conversation. It goes much deeper than story. Yeah. It goes to what you then said, which is relationship. Yeah, say more and, about that. And, and building relationship. Uh, the reason that Pat and I feel like brother and sister to each other is because we have spent time together, time outside of a Sunday potluck, or uh, a small group meeting. Uh, we've been in each other's homes and, and we've shared dinners together and I have been included in Pat's family with his children, with his wife, and, and there's a relationship there 
Who am I going to go to when I have questions, when I have stuff in my life that I can't figure out on my own? I'm going to go to this man. And there are others in my life to whom I will go, and it's because they have formed a relationship with me. They have sought me out. I say, he literally came after me to Abilene. You think, you think that doesn't uh, give him a, a leg up, so to speak, with uh, influencing my decisions, my opinions, my attitudes? Of course it does. You've got to have that relationship first. That is, that is what really and truly creates a safe place. And, and I think it's important for us to acknowledge that we're, we're often, we're talking to people who have, have come to a very different place, who absolutely do not see anything wrong with their lives, uh, who do not see anything wrong with their sexuality. And so for us to just automatically make the assumption that there is something wrong, even if it's uh, several steps after we build a relationship down the line agenda, uh, that can be smelled a, a mile away. And so can we not just enter into relationship for the sake of relationship building and and do what Jesus did, which was to engage people. I love that story in John 8 because here is someone, here's a woman that nobody would have stood up for. Mm. Nobody. He stood up for her. He would stand up for me. That's precious to me. That has more of an impact on my life, the fact that I have a Lord and Savior who would stand up to me. That's what I need to have pointed out to me far more often than, yes, but he said, go and sin no more. That doesn't get me where you really and truly want to get me, which is right here. Can you imagine, can you imagine not having a church family? Have you ever had a time in your life where you didn't have a church family, where you were not a part of a congregation? I've had times where I didn't feel as connected in a congregation, but there's never been a time in my life when I haven't been a part of a church. I grew up in that, and that was my family. My mother told me, these people are your family. I literally grew up calling people brother and sister, so-and-so. That's my family. And in this past year, I cannot imagine what it would have been like to not have the Highland Oaks family mm. bringing me dinner, bringing me chicken salad, Diane, sending me cards constantly. I've got a stack of cards that high I had people with me at chemo every treatment. I never went alone. I couldn't go to doctor's appointments alone. My neighbor Nancy back there was with me at doctor's appointments. I didn't have to go through that alone because I had a church family. Can you imagine going through anything like that without a church family? 
that's what will happen if we don't allow people to come in. So what would it take for your church to be a safe place for me, for my LGBTQ brothers and sisters? Not to bait and switch because that's hurtful. It's harmful. You understand what I mean there? To love and, and include and, and make believe that you can be a part and you can be just like one of us, only to find out that what is deemed your sin would limit you in terms of how much you can participate. That's hurtful. Because you build relationships and you develop uh, a kinship with people and you feel at home and it reminds you of the church where you grew up and you love the place and you love the people, but the door stops here. And you can't lead a prayer, you can't teach a Sunday school class, you can't do a service project. Be careful about that because it would almost be better some people would tell you it would be better to never make the invitation in the first place than to lead someone in and mislead them as to whether or not they would be included. You see, the people who come to my house for dinner want a church family in which they can be included. They are looking for a church family. Andrew Marin's book, Us Versus Us, says that 86% of us are uh, raised in Christian homes, but that number drops to 20-something when you ask how many people are still involved in a church. That was not of our choosing because either things that were said to us or the way we were made to feel has led us away from church. And yet, when asked, 74% of us want to find a church home, want to find a place where we can worship because we know that there are things in our lives that we need the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the fellowship of the body of Christ to make different in our lives. And we want that. We need shepherds then. And we need ministry leaders who will step up. Who will stand in the gap for us. Who will take up for us among those who would throw rocks. We need shepherds who will stand up for us. I'm wondering if you remember this guy. Remember this man? Anybody know this man? We must not have any baseball fans in here. That guy's Branch Rickey. You know who Branch Rickey is. Branch Rickey is, was the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And because of Branch Rickey, Jackie Robinson got to play baseball with the professional league for the very first time. Branch Rickey made it possible for the first African-American to be a professional baseball player in the United States. 
He took heat like nobody's business. He had a filing cabinet drawer full of letters, threats to his family, to him, calling him everything but a child of God. But he didn't flinch because he knew it was the right thing to do. Why? Because Branch Rickey was a follower of Jesus. He followed Jesus. And he knew that you don't leave people out. You don't leave them out in the cold. We're all sinners. And there's not one aspect of our lives that's different from any other aspect of our lives. I love this example. What I like to tell elders when I get to visit with them is that we need a bunch of old white guys who will stand up for us. We need some old white women <laughs> to stand up for us, and we need some young ones. We're going to have to take a stand. That doesn't mean in an antagonistic way. That doesn't mean in a, a derogatory way. But it means that we'll do what Jesus did. And he stood up for people that nobody else wanted to have anything to do with. That's what I'm called to do. That's what you're called to do. So let's answer some questions. Yeah, and, and before we go any further, uh, please don't uh, accuse Sally of leaving out the black community um, just because she referenced old white men. Um, well, I was referring to Branch Rickey. Can, can we just... That's the comparison. But can we just be fair and say that that's the majority oh, of yes. the people you talk to are wrapped in a really light colored skin? Uh, yes. Churches. Y yeah, yes. Unfortunately. Yes, unfortunately. That's another class for another day. Yes. We got to do better, folks. Okay, so we're getting ready to have some unstructured dialogue between Sally and I. Uh, and to be fair, I don't really know where this is going to go um, other uh -oh. than we're going to try to demonstrate how to take steps in some really helpful directions uh, around some really complex questions. Uh, these are the questions I have. These are the questions that <coughs> we're not going to get to. Uh, they're all really good questions, but we're going to try to address some of this. Uh, one of these is really important as we begin. Uh, what's the relationship between sexual orientation and gender identification? Hmm, I don't know that I can technically answer that. I would Okay, stop right there. Did you hear what Sally said? The expert in same-sex attraction said, I don't really know how to answer that. Is that not liberating for everyone in this room? It's okay to say, uh, I got three theological words for you. I don't know. Okay, go ahead. Uh, gender, I'll take a stab at this. Uh, Miriam, if I get something wrong, you tell me, okay? <laughs> uh, sexual orientation has more to do with um, my sexuality and, and to whom I'm attracted uh, and how I, how I express my sexuality. Gender is related 
but it's different. Um, gender has to do with uh, whether I am, uh, and I, I hate to use these binary terms, and that's a whole other conversation. That it is. Uh, because there's so much fluidity to both gender and sexuality that uh, to, to think that it is limited exclusively to male and female, and males do this and females do this, uh, those are very uh, socio-cultural constructs, and that means they differ from place to place, from family to family, from age to age. And so um, gender refers to, if, if I can, that aside, if I can say that it refers to your masculinity or femininity, or some combination thereof, or you're falling somewhere on, on the spectrum. Is there anything you want to add to that, Miriam? Identification, yes. So Thank you. With that exp right. And I appreciate that explanation, <clears throat> but with that explanation, let's talk about what a gospel step towards that person would look like. One approach would be, man, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You are really screwed up. We need to pray for you. Now, you may laugh, but that's a really popular response. And to a 14-year-old, that would make me want to come back to church. Are you picking up on my sarcasm? What if we simply said, tell me more about what that's like? Yep. H help me understand how, why you feel that way. Mm -hmm. and, and I would be really aware of the expression on my face. Yeah. Tell me about that. Be very careful because some of us watch faces more than we listen to your words. And so it will be really important for your facial expression to be warm and welcoming. And sometimes you just simply say, okay, at that point, because you're developing a, a relationship. And so what do you want me to, what, what's your name? And, and if you really want to be savvy, for our ears to perk up and think, oh my goodness, this person knows what they're talking about. Ask me what my pronouns are. Ask what a person's pronouns are. You may think that's the weirdest thing under the sun. Do you want to talk to your 14-year-old grandchild or not? That's the question that's most important. And if you do, then these are some things that, that we can learn. And I'll tell you what, if you ask that question, Oh, my goodness, you might get an earful. And, and the point is not to begin with, can we have a conversation about what God thinks? But rather, the point right. is, 
to begin the conversation with a relational move. Tell me what this is like. Can I, won't you come on out of that tree and can I have dinner at your house tonight? Uh, along these social constructs, uh, this is a really interesting question. And, and I hate to ask it, but I'm going to anyways. How can we be open and supportive to a young person exhibiting behaviors that seem to be homosexual, especially feminist behavior in boys? Well, for starters, um, I think it's really important, I'll, I'll say this here, for us to begin understanding some new language. Yes. Um, the, the word homosexual is a very antiquated term. Uh, it's a very clinical sounding term. I grew up with it being associated with sinfulness. With it, It's in the same uh, group of words as abomination. Mm. And so I never wanted anybody calling me a homosexual, the homosexuals. Uh, that language, the use of that word alone, instantly says to a person from the LGBT community, aha, this person is not very well versed or this person is going to really be opposed to me if they know all that there is to know about me, including my sexuality. So just the use of that word can be a, a clue to someone. The correct vernacular today is that acronym, LGBTQ. And yes, there are a lot of other letters that go behind it. If you want to be really savvy, say LGBTQ+. And, and then don't, don't worry about the other letters at this point. If you know somebody younger, ask them. But just use that acronym, the LGBT community. If you just say that, you're going to be light years uh, ahead of your peers. Uh, if you want to use uh, the Q in that acronym, stands for queer, and queer, when I was growing up, was a very derogatory term. Mm -hmm. You didn't call anybody queer at all. People today have embraced that word and have reclaimed it as something that's sort of an umbrella term for anyone within the LGBTQ community. Help define queer quickly for this group. Uh, if somebody says they're queer, what does that mean? It, it can be all, all kinds of sexuality. Did you hear that? Okay, keep going. Uh, the Q also stands for questioning. So don't automatically, if you have, uh, especially if you, anybody, you got a 20-year-old who says, I identify as questioning, that's the person you sit down and say, let's, let's talk about that. Tell me, tell me what, what you're questioning. Tell me more about that. Those, those are the, uh, the kinds of things you say. Uh, you asked what I would say. Um, I, I do not identify as a, a lesbian uh, just because I don't particularly like that word. Mm -hmm. And that has more to do with the connotative definition to me. The connotative definition of a word is what you've grown up with personally and what it personally means to me. The denotative is the definition from the dictionary. But the connotation of that is um, something that, that I don't like to identify with. If I'm with a group of women who identify as lesbians and someone wants to call me a lesbian, by all means, 
please, I, I will answer to that, to that label. Why? Because I'll be all things to all people. Mm. Because we're talking about what's going to open more conversation. Mm -hmm. What's going to develop and build deeper relationship. Not my arguing semantics over, well, I can't use the word gay. I'm not, you can't be gay and Christian. Yes, you can. Yes, you can by today's definition. I know many young people who would identify as gay Christians who are committed to a life of celibacy. They're sitting in your pews. Do you realize that? When I was growing up, the word gay meant that you were automatically promiscuous, sexually promiscuous, running around anybody that moved you had sex with. Mm -hmm. That is not what it means to our children today. The word gay is more about to whom you are attracted, to how you see yourself, to how you relate to both the opposite sex and the same sex. That word gay is not just about sexual behavior. We have become so fixated on this being about sexual behavior that we have made precious, precious souls sitting in your pews who have never acted on those sexual feelings of attraction at all to feeling that they are the lowest of the low. We have heaped shame that is absolutely unnecessary because all that is there is a feeling. And we've assumed, like Pat was talking about in the first session, that there was automatically behavior because someone called himself or herself gay. We've got a lot of room to grow in terms of learning language. And that language can either open the door to more or it can close it real fast. Uh, this is why I think, uh, I think, my opinion, uh, the work of children's ministers and student ministers is hardest, is the hardest as it's ever been. Uh, if you're not lifting up your youth ministers and your children's ministers at your church, Please do that because uh, they, they really have uh, a hard, complex uh, road to navigate. Um, I, I want to address the, the real crux of that question, though, okay. uh, about what would be called effeminate behavior. And that's yeah. the, the word that, that Paul used in the NIV, I guess. Uh, so I don't know that that's really what it means or, or not. Um, we get really concerned, and, and I can say this because I come from a family, uh, you know, where men are men, and uh, men do these things and they don't do these things. Again, a sociocultural uh, stereotype. Yes. Um, because I know men who are uh, absolutely wonderful chefs. That's one of those traits or activities that we don't often attribute to men, right? In my family, men didn't cook. Mm. Why, my father, bless his heart, it's a miracle he has not starved since my mother died. But those kinds of, of traits, those kinds of characteristics, we still look to and, and make assumptions 
that because uh, a little boy may be drawn to things that our culture has deemed more feminine, that, oh, my word, we, he's, he's going to be gay. You, you don't know that. He, he may, uh, just like the color pink, uh, what can happen is when we overreact mm. and we make a big deal out of something that is simply a preference, when we make a big deal out of something that is a gift from God for music, for dance, and instead, we convey the message to him that he will only be loved if he does these things, if he likes these things, if he's good at this thing with the ball. Until we get over that, I feel for our little boys and the grown men who come to me and share those stories of feeling unwanted and unloved in their own families and in their own churches because they know they don't fit in. Hey, this is a great segue to our next question. Uh, somebody said, okay, I've got neighbors, uh, a lesbian couple. <clears throat> I help them with yard work. I want to be really friendly to them. Uh, they've even been in our home. But I'm fearful if I invite them to my church what people will say. Is it really worth the risk? That's the, the sad reality, isn't it? Because there are people I want to, to bring to church too. And, and yet, just like I said earlier, we're all over the spectrum in every church. And so there are people that I know I can be, be safe with and I can introduce this, this couple uh, to and we can all go to lunch, and we have done that, and the table's not big enough for all of us. But there's always that risk. Now, if they have a background in church, which is likely, they may understand that, but, but we certainly don't want that. And uh, part of me wants to say, go ahead. You know, it, but I would invite them to dinner in your house first. I would uh, go to dinner at their house first. I would get to know them really well and build a relationship so that no matter what happens at church, it doesn't leave another bad taste in their mouths. You've given many examples, told stories of negative reactions from people within the church towards the LGBT community. What are some positive ones? Hmm. How do we respond with the love of Jesus? How do we welcome people, be inclusive? Um, you know, this is rooted in something called appreciative inquiry. If any of you are, are uh, nerds and you want to Google that, it's a way of doing research where you ask questions about something positive rather than always thinking in terms of the negative. We are typically a really negative people, aren't we? Hey, let's talk about what's wrong. That'll make us all feel great. Uh, what if we talked about what was right? So. What are some positive stories or examples that you've heard of churches uh, doing this in a helpful way, Sally? Give us a couple. First one that comes to mind uh, was my dear friend, Mike Woodall. Mike uh, lived in Searcy, Arkansas. He grew up there, uh, went to Harding, and in his senior year, he was uh, discovered... Uh, in a relationship with uh, another young man, and he was 
dismissed from the university two months short of graduating. He was just devastated, uh, but he, he left. He went off to Seattle. He became a famous drag queen in one of the largest gay districts in the country, Capitol Hill. He was well-known, popular. He developed a, a heart condition, needed some surgery, and he didn't have the money for that. He came home hoping that his family would uh, rally around him. They didn't, they didn't want anything to do with him. He was uh, homeless, he was carless, and he would walk around town. And a friend of mine who was preaching for one of the churches there in Searcy, the downtown church, would see Mike walking, and he got to where he would pick him up and give him a ride. And they struck up a friendship. And Mike started coming to see him in his office, and they talked more, and they talked more. And eventually, Mike started going to the downtown church. He hadn't grown up in the Church of Christ. He just went to Harding because it was a school near his home. But he became an active member in the downtown church, and he was involved. And people loved him, and he loved them. When he died, uh, several years later, after his family had rejected him for what he considered a final time, not allowing him to come to the hospital to see a stepmother who was dying, he uh, was in a car accident. And his family wouldn't pay for any of the funeral or burial expenses. And so it was the downtown church under the leadership of Monty Cox and those elders who did all the service for Mike. They took care of all of the funeral home expense. They took care of all of his home they took care of all of his belongings. Those of us who were his friends got to come in and um, have mementos from Mike. But that was what the downtown church did. I know another story. And by the way, before you get to that other story, <clears throat> Monty Cox is the dean of the Bible department at Harding University. Mm -hmm. so, so don't hear that as an, an unnecessary criticism of Harding dismissing Mike Woodall, but rather a church. Coming full circle. Coming full circle. Yeah. What a beautiful story. Yeah. I know uh, a couple who uh, didn't know this young man, uh, but he started attending their church and was actually singing on their praise team while attending Harding Graduate School of Theology. And they got to know him. And as they got to know him, he was in a, a tumultuous time of sharing with his family that he was gay. And he made the trip home to talk to his mom and dad to tell his family that he was gay. And to ask his father, who was a preacher, for conversation, for dialogue, to discuss these things that he had been reading and learning. And could we have conversations about that? Instead, he was cast out. All of his financial support was cut off. And then he meets this couple who's also singing on the praise team with him. A couple who ends up taking him in, taking him in as their own son. And he lived with them for nearly two years. 
holidays weren't without this young man. It was hard sometimes. Their home wasn't large. Most of us would have said, we just don't have enough room. It's, it's pretty small for just, just us. But they didn't do that. They took him in. And that young man had a family. The family that Pat told you about whose funding was cut from their mission work because they appeared in a picture on Facebook at his wedding. How could you not go to a wedding of a young man that you had nurtured and cared for who had lived with you for two years as your own? How could you not go? Those are two good stories. So um, we, we don't have a whole lot more time. Um, it's a really interesting question. <clears throat> Someone is gay, but in a heterosexual marriage they want to fight for. With this being such a big part of their identity, is the healthy thing to come out to their faith community or remain private? Depends on their faith community. Yes. Uh, I will tell you right now that the third most closeted group that I know are people in mixed orientation marriages. Is it possible to be in a mixed story? And by that I mean someone who has feelings of attraction for their own uh, sex and someone who is heterosexual. Do I know people who are in mixed orientation marriages who are happy and fulfilled? Yes, I do. I do. Can I get them to share their stories? No. Why? Because they're scared bodily to death of what will happen at their church. Maybe sometimes there are children involved and we haven't done a lot of talking about how you might have that conversation with a child. And so the children get to be adults and then it's a really big deal. Whereas when they were little, it might not have been. So it's really scary for someone who's in a mixed orientation to come out to you. Most of the marriages that I know have either ended in divorce or they're not happy because we haven't done a lot of talking about how to equip a spouse whose husband or whose wife is not naturally physically attracted to them. And what does that mean for our marriage as though the sexual aspect of the relationship was most important? There are people who work that out because that is what they believe God has called them to. That is what fits in their world. And I'll tell you what, I will be the first to stand up for their decision to do that but I will also be the first to stand up and say that if you do that without knowledge, if you do that without guidance, if you do that without the body of Christ, I fear for you. Because that mentality 
that we used to have when I was growing up that if you just get married, just go ahead and get married and all those feelings will go away is a lie. We've got to learn how to talk about this for a lot of demographics in our audience, in our pews, not just our children, but for people my age and older who have tried for decades to live this out just exactly like you said you wanted us to do with no help. we got to open that closet too. Yeah, which is why it's so hard, and, and I think I'm okay to lump myself in the same category as Sally with this because I've had this question posed to me a number of times. Uh, why can't you just say it's wrong? I mean, what's the big deal? Why can't you just say it's wrong? Well, because I think it's so hard to know what you mean when you ask me, why can't you just say it's wrong? Well, let's sit down and talk about this. Well, why can't you just say it's wrong? Would you like to get together and have coffee? I'm not gonna have coffee with you until you can tell me whether this is right or wrong. That is an exact conversation I've had with someone. And I, I don't know how to be in conversation with someone who has no willingness to listen to a story or, or to say, what's this been like for you? So, so two final questions that have everything to do with this uh, as we bring this to a landing. Sally, what do you say when someone asks if being gay is a sin? I would first ask them what uh, being gay means to them. And, and uh, you know, as an old debate coach, you define your terms, <laughs> first of all. You, you figure out what it is that that means to the other person because they may be saying something totally different than, than uh, how I would define that, that term. Um, my answer to that, if, if being gay means to them that I am more naturally drawn to, to women, um, not just sexually, but emotionally, intellectually, spiritually. Uh, there's a lot more to being gay than just sexual attraction. Again, the, the behavior thing. Uh, it, it has to do with how we relate to uh, the opposite sex and the same sex. And, and for, there's, there's nothing about that that is wrong. I, I find nowhere in, in scripture that uh, those feelings are wrong. I, I did not choose those feelings. Uh, that's kind of like the joke thing. I, I, it's a shame that we still have to reiterate that being gay is not a choice, but we do have to say that because there's still misunderstanding about that. Hmm. Uh, but it was not my choice. Um, there's, there's nothing about uh, being gay, experiencing same-sex attraction, uh, nothing about that that is sinful. Uh, last question, and then we're going to bring this to a close. Uh, how do ministers facilitate an atmosphere of loving inclusion toward individuals experiencing same-sex attraction within their congregation? Come spend a lot of time with this guy. Come spend a lot of time with Pat and... Um, Watch how he interacts with people. Watch how he relates to people. Uh, he never meets a stranger, and there's, there's nobody that he does not uh, 
engage with, uh, interact with. Um, I had only been around him one time before he came to get me in Abilene. Um, I, I think it's about time, it's about relationship, it's about your willingness to really and truly want to know what I feel, what I think about things. Um, I think that's what has done that for me. Geez, Ellie, thanks. Um, uh, confessionally, this is not something that comes easy for me. Um, you know, I grew up on a farm, so there's not a lot that I won't talk about. You know, maybe it's because I grew up watching cows have sex that I have no problem talking about sexual things. Uh, some of you that grew up on a farm uh, will understand that. The rest of you think I'm just strange, but in a Holy Spirit way, I get it. Um, <laughs> but, but there is a, a level of comfortability that we must have with someone who is different than we are that, that is deeply rooted in how we see people. And, and I hope, once again, you're hearing Sally and I both say, uh, this is not about a conversation that begins with, is this right or wrong? But this is about a conversation to see how we can have more conversation. And it's a how. Uh, are there theological rocks or signposts that Sally and I deeply adhere to? Yes. Do we love scripture? Absolutely. But we love it enough to say, tell me more about this. Sarah Cunningham is a lady that has a story that's similar to many of you. She always knew that her son was gay, but she never really wanted to really admit it until her son was 19 or 20 and he finally came out and she had to make a decision whether to love her child or disown her child. Sarah Cunningham decided to love her child and she had this bizarre idea of going to the gay pride parade in Oklahoma City and show up with a button on that simply said free mom hugs. She describes this moment where she was covered in glitter from head to toe because she was swarmed with people at the parade hugging her. Sarah Cunningham has been doing this since 2014. She's getting ready to start another 10 city tour and it's just called the Free Mom Hugs Tour, where she has two initiatives. It's Let's Talk and then Let's Walk. And the Let's Talk is over lunch, they gather in some civic area and have conversations with faith leaders. They don't go to a gay bar, they don't go to a church, they go to a neutral site. And then Let's Walk, that night they find a gay bar or they find a gay district and they simply show up with the only agenda of having a button on that says free mom hugs. That's it. They're not trying to change anybody's mind. They just want to be loved. What would it look like if we had free church hugs and our community knew that our only agenda was to embrace you right where you were and we simply said, tell us more. We're willing to get the glitter. We're willing to get anything that you've got 
all over us, head to toe. Now there have to be a hug for all our introverts in the room. How about a high five? How about a fist bump? It's some relational connection that says, I'm interested in who you are way more than what you are. So, I want to thank Sally Gary for her immeasurable courage to, to begin and continue a ministry that receives unbelievable speculation. And Sally's world is filled with all kinds of assumptions. But her only agenda is to love well. And she can talk all she wants to about how great I am. Trust me, it pales in comparison to the secrets that Sally holds from our elders, from our ministers all over this country who are terrified to say anything about this conversation. And we are ready for others to join. And there are many others. Come to the E3 conference. Send Sally an email. Let's have coffee and let's talk.